The United States does not hit the brakes, but continues to speed down the wrong path. No amount of guardrails can prevent derailing or a crash, and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. Such a competition is a reckless gamble, with the stakes being the fundamental interests of the two peoples and the future of humanity. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. We just heard new Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang in his first press conference earlier this week with unusually strong language about Beijing's relations with Washington. We're going to look at what's happened over the past few weeks that's triggered another downturn in relations between the world's two superpowers. Coming on the air at this hour with breaking news. Just moments ago, the U.S. shot down the suspected Chinese surveillance balloon off the coast of the Carolinas. A recovery operation is now underway. So in early February, a U.S. fighter jet shot down what Washington concluded was a massive Chinese spy balloon off the U.S. east coast, prompting loud condemnation from Beijing. Later that month, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, met with Wang Yi, China's highest-ranking diplomat, at the Munich Security Conference. And after the meeting, Blinken issued this warning. We are uh, concerned that China is considering uh, supporting Russia's war effort in Ukraine with lethal assistance, something that we're watching uh, very, very closely. As I also said, uh, and as President Biden said, going back many months when the aggression first took place, and he spoke to President uh, Xi Jinping, uh, he told him at that point that um, there would be real um, consequences in our own relationship were China to provide lethal assistance to um, Russia in this uh, aggression against Ukraine or uh, in a systematic way aid in the evasion of, uh, of sanctions. Chinese officials subsequently seemed to reassure Europeans that Beijing wouldn't arm Russia and released a document they said was a peace plan for Ukraine. But the past week has seen increasingly harsh language from Beijing toward the US and an emphasis on how much China values its ties to Russia. All this comes amid heightened tensions between the US and China over Taiwan. So will China send weapons and ammunition to Russia? How does it view the Ukraine war? And what does the US downing of the balloon say about US-China crisis management? Is a showdown over Taiwan likely anytime soon? To talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast Crisis Group's China expert, Amanda Shao, and our Chief of Policy, Steve Pomper. Amanda, Steve, welcome back on. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks, Richard. So we'll have the opportunity to talk about the balloon and about Taiwan. But let's start with Ukraine and China's Ukraine policy. So a couple of weeks ago, as we heard, we had these warnings by Tony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, that China might provide lethal aid to Russia's war efforts. Thus far, that's been a line that Beijing hasn't crossed. But um, might that change? I mean, what are some of the things that have informed Beijing's policy so far? And is there any sense that they're evolving? Yeah, thanks, Richard. To answer that, it's useful to take a step back and to understand China's strategic assessment of its relationship with Russia, and therefore its positioning on the Ukraine conflict. Now, the Chinese have been walking a rather delicate tightrope. I think that that will remain the case. And the reason for this is because China continues to see value in strategically aligning with Russia. This week, Qin Gang, China's foreign minister, said, The more turbulent the world becomes, the more China-Russia relations should make steady progress. So in other words, the China-Russia partnership has very much to do with 
the U.S.-China competition and an attempt by Beijing to really balance against the pressures that it feels coming from the U.S. So Russia is a useful partner in that the two governments are both opposed to what they like to describe as American hegemony to American containment of other major powers. And I would add that Russia is seen as a useful partner to have in China's corner should a crisis break out over Taiwan or should Beijing one day decide to wage a military campaign on Taiwan. So Beijing sees little gain in distancing itself from Moscow. But at the same time, China is still interested in the possibility of improving its relations with Europe, of preventing its relationship with the U.S. from getting worse. And, you know, and that very much has to do with China's continued economic growth and technological advancements. Um, and it also cares about its image before the non-Western world. And so that's why we do see that China continues to walk this delicate balancing act So we've seen that trade has grown between the two countries. Uh, China continues to blame the West and NATO for causing the conflict in line with Russia's narrative. Um, But it also continues to observe Western sanctions and, as you note, has so far held back from providing lethal assistance. I do think that this should be closely monitored in terms of China providing military assistance, but the public information pushed by the U.S. will effectively, I think, deter Beijing. The costs of crossing that line, I think, has been made clear to Beijing from both the U.S. and Europe. And Amanda, is it a bad thing for China that the U.S. is occupied with Ukraine, sending weapons, ammunition, a lot of money to Europe, and maybe as a result it has a bit less bandwidth for Asia? Beijing has expressed what some disquiet about Russian President Vladimir Putin's nuclear threats, but is a protracted war in Europe so bad for China? Um, No, I don't think it's necessarily a a negative consequence from Beijing's perspective. A a distracted U.S. is, of course, useful to China since it does see itself as in a long-term struggle with the U.S. But I, I don't think that they are happy about the conflict I think that the Chinese were surprised by Russia's decisions and the size of Russia's ambitions vis-a-vis Ukraine. And I do get the sense that the Chinese uh, see Russian decision-making as fairly chaotic, not to mention other consequences of this conflict that I think must be worrying for Beijing, particularly food security and supply chain. And I don't think either that they see themselves as being very capable of shaping the course of the conflict, or that there's much of a desire to step into the conflict too much. And if, from what you said, there's strong reasons for Beijing not to provide weapons or ammunition to Moscow, particularly after the warnings from Western capitals, you also don't then see much hope of Beijing playing some sort of mediation role to help end the war? So this paper that they issued doesn't really provide anything close to a roadmap to peace. You know, it doesn't really offer either the ingredients of a solution or a process by which to reach a political solution. Rather, it's just a rehashing of China's general positions, 
and talks more about the need to manage and to mitigate the consequences of the conflict. And even there, its positions are quite general. You know, countries should support the UN in providing humanitarian aid to civilians. Uh, how grain exports should be facilitated, etc. So I, I don't see it as indicating any growing will on the part of China to wade into a facilitation or mediation role. I don't think that China is interested or capable of playing such a role. So beyond Ukraine, over the last month or so, we've also had this big balloon that was shot down off the east coast of the U.S. Eventually, but had drifted. Seemingly over the whole of the U.S. mainland, U.S. officials say that they think it was supposed to be conducting surveillance over U.S. bases in the Pacific, but winds carried it off course, and the White House eventually sort of deployed this fighter jet to shoot it down. They called off a visit by Secretary of State Blinken to Beijing, gave a briefing to many other countries about China's spying balloon program. Steve, do you want to say a little bit about sort of how this incident's gone down in the U.S. and and the U.S. reaction to it? Sure. It's one of these things where, by all appearances, this is something that neither the Chinese nor the United States wanted. As you said, it seems to be the surmise that the Chinese intended the balloon to surveil various installations in the Pacific and the winds blew it over the United States at just a terrible time because – There had been a lot of planning, I think, on both sides for Secretary Blinken to make a trip to China and hopefully use that as an occasion to de-escalate a little bit some of the heightened tensions that had developed over the course of the last year or so. And Blinken's visit was sort of seen as a follow-up to the meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping at the G20 last year. Sure. So, I mean, you can imagine the amount of choreography that went into, first of all, um, having a nice meeting between Xi and Biden at the G20 and then, you know, using that as a what seemed to be a launching pad for preparing this visit. And for that to be blown up at the last minute seems like it wouldn't have been what either side necessarily wanted. But it really became outside the control of either party to sort of tone things down while the balloon was floating across the United States. Both sides seem to have had trouble reading the other's intentions. So it seems like after the balloon appeared, became visible over the western mountain states of the United States, Secretary Blinken, Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman, called in the Chinese ambassador for a formal demarche and said, basically, you have to get this balloon off our territory. You need to do something about it. For whatever reason, the Chinese didn't appear to be able to do it or didn't do it. So the balloon just continued to drift. Media hysteria and political uh, rhetoric heightened by about Friday of that week. So maybe two days after the demarche, the State Department let it be known that Blinken wasn't going to be making his trip. So that opportunity, that window closed. And If you were to read the rhetoric of some politicians and some of the media accounts, you'd practically think the United States was under assault by this unarmed, undefended balloon. Finally, the balloon drifted off the shores of the Carolinas on the East Coast and was shot down by an F-22 fighter in front of all of social media. And the whole spectacle, I think, looked pretty unsettling to the rest of the world because, you know, you could see how U.S. domestic politics was just ratcheting up tensions 
with respect to an incident that, of course, was uncomfortable for the United States. Nobody wants a surveillance balloon from an adversarial power floating over their territory. But it wasn't that serious. It wasn't something that couldn't be managed. And yet uh, you saw both sides playing off of each other and trying to s- sort of assert strength in the face of this ostensible threat in a way that just didn't seem contained or uh, entirely prudent. And Amanda, I mean, how was this seen in Beijing? Well, when Wang Yi spoke uh, a couple weeks ago at the Munich Security Conference, he called the U.S.'s reaction hysterical and absurd. The emphasis now is very much that the Chinese are saying the U.S. conducts surveillance all the time on other countries, particularly China. The U.S. has been hyping this issue up and that the U.S. used force unnecessarily. Just to clarify, Amanda, I mean, China officially it denies that this was a spy balloon. It says it was a sort of weather monitoring for civilian purposes, right? But it also says that the U.S. does a lot of spying. Right. So they're calling it an unmanned civilian airship that is used for meteorological purposes. Yeah. And, you know, early on in the episode, China did issue a statement of regret, which is fairly rare for Beijing to do. But they also stated publicly early on that it was a weather balloon and that it had unintentionally flown into U.S. airspace. Now, the latter is possibly true, as you both have mentioned, but the former is not. And so that statement did set up a clash of views that once publicly said, neither side could step back from, and and particularly the Chinese. And then after the U.S. shot down the balloon, we saw a, a pivot in the rhetoric coming out of China. It became much more defensive. And then the U.S. decided to cancel the meeting. And as you mentioned, Richard, this derailed the sort of small steps that were seemingly made on the sidelines of the G20 when she and Biden met face to face. What we saw out of that meeting was not a shift in policy substance or core positions, uh, but there was a shift in tone and certainly an expressed desire to continue dialogue. And it seems in a sort of more rational world where the incident didn't play so much into US politics and, and media attention that Washington might have expressed its disapproval, might have sort of welcomed China's statement of regret and you know, sent Blinken to Beijing for what was, by all accounts, planned to be an important visit. The Biden administration seems to want to, uh, while maintain the competition with China, also seems to want to establish a sort of floor under its deteriorating bilateral relations, but that the politics sort of got in the way of that. I mean, is that a fair reading, Steve? That's my reading. I mean, you saw in real time scholars, think tankers here in the U.S. saying this was really a missed opportunity. You know, Blinken could have gone on the trip and he would have gone to China with his hosts being somewhat embarrassed and might have even had a leg up in discussions that for whatever that would have been worth. But I think a lot of people thought that the talks were well worth conducting just because continued escalation really is in neither Washington's nor Beijing's interests. But the politics really did become impossible. Um, and I think the White House saw that within a couple of days. The balloon, every day that it was over the U.S., was just a, a big fat target for 
really pitched political rhetoric. And you had candidates for the 2024 election declared and undeclared talking about how traumatized American children were going to be um, to have to see this balloon floating over their country. And Steve, am I wrong on this, but weren't there similar incidents when Trump himself was president, even though, of course, he made a lot of hay out of it this time? It's not really clear how much they knew at the time. So it sounds like about two or three years ago, the U.S. became aware that there had been various anomalies and started trying to put together a picture of what the balloon surveillance program looked like. It sounds like the U.S. was tracking this balloon, which I gather was launched from China's Hainan Island, from the moment that it went up into the air and that they were watching its progress across the Pacific. And I imagine they thought they would manage it quietly like they usually do. And it was really only when it became visible to civilian eyes in the United States that it acquired a whole new dimension. I agree with all of that. In this day and age, you can imagine how incidents that maybe in decades past could have been hidden from the public's eye that maybe both governments would have preferred to keep it from their public's embarrassing incidents such as this. Nowadays, it's much harder to get away with that. And I do think that this incident is really a, a perfect example of why the, the two sides do need to sit down and to discuss uh, the ways that they can prevent these incidents from escalating into much larger crises. But the unfortunate reality is that we are uh, much further away, I think, from dialogue resuming. You know, I mentioned before Wang Yi's remarks in Munich, but we saw in the last couple of days Chinese state media reporting that she called out the U.S. by name uh, in a private meeting. And this is rare, you know, usually such direct name calling is really left to underlings. And in a, you know, very performative press conference this week, Foreign Minister Ching Gang had very harsh words. He warned that a conflict with the U.S. could uh, occur if the U.S. did not hit the brakes in its confrontation with China. So the tone of the relationship, which had begun to soften uh, following the 20th Party Congress, following the G20 meeting, uh, has now hardened. So we'll come into the main flashpoint between the US and China, uh, Taiwan, in a moment. But during an incident like this, as the balloon floated across the US, you'd hope for lines of communication, sort of hotlines, guardrails, as they're often called, and as the Biden administration itself says it wants in the relationship with China, sort of guardrails to prevent incidents like this escalating. I mean, Steve, you mentioned the Dimash by the State Department, but were there also calls between the two countries' defense departments, between the two countries' militaries? So the reporting was that during that first Dimash at the State Department, that was the message. And that was before um, the Blinken trip had been called off. But basically, the message was you need to do something about this. <laughs> the way I read that in any event was that U.S. senior officials were saying, please, this is going to be a mess for both of us. Let's see if we can try and do something about it now. In any event, it didn't work. And as Amanda said, the Chinese expressed regret 
a couple of days later, but they also lied about what the balloon was there for. And I just don't know how that sat with U.S. officials. In answer to your question about mill-mill channels, Richard, I believe the Secretary of Defense, Austin, reached out through the channels he had to try and make contact with his Chinese counterpart after the whole incident had sort of wrapped up in the sense that an F-22 had shot the balloon down off of the eastern United States, and I don't believe he got through. And I think that I mean, Amanda should confirm this, but I believe that that's not unusual, that you know the, the U.S. will reach out through uh, a channel and the Chinese may sometimes just ghost them, and that's what they did in that case. Well, especially after the U.S. has just uh, just shot down their expensive balloon. <laughs> no, I mean that's that's exactly it, actually, Richard. You know, um, th- th- that that is precisely it. You know, they didn't pick up the phone because the U.S. just shot down their balloon, and you know, in the sort of Chinese thinking in terms of communications, it, it's never just a, a sort of completely apolitical gesture. You know, every sort of response and move during a highly publicized incident like that has political meaning. But that actually gets us back to, you know, some of the challenges that still persist in even if the two sides do eventually resume discussions of guardrails. I don't want to keep going back to Qinggang's press conference, but he said something quite interesting in his remarks, you know, he just this week, right, he he expressed a lot of skepticism for uh, establishing guardrails. He said that the U.S.'s call for guardrails actually means that China should not respond in words or in action when China is slandered or attacked. And he said that that is just impossible. Um, and, and we discussed this, you know, last time we spoke on the podcast. This really underscores the skepticism with, with which the Chinese treat American proposals for, for guardrails. And fundamentally, they think that the guardrails uh, would benefit the U.S. more and tie China's hands by denying China certain tools and means of response that Beijing thinks are necessary as the weaker party. So, you know, Richard, just to pick up on that, when we talk to interlocutors here in the U.S. government, they ask us about what work we're doing on these kinds of guardrail and deconfliction mechanisms. And, of course, we have put out a report um, that explores that space. But what we have to point out, as we did in that report, is that from the Chinese perspective, these guardrails and safeguards, to some extent, are de-risking American behavior that the Chinese don't want to see. Right, because, I mean, this was an incident in the US, but often when Washington talks about guardrails, it means for incidents around China, which is logical. I mean, that's where the main points of friction are. But China sees guardrails as preserving a military balance, preserving a a US presence in the region, which the Chinese over time want to change, right? I think from the US perspective, it's meant to allow the U.S. and China to continue to compete and in some cases to be confrontational with each other, but to create some boundaries on that so that competition doesn't veer into conflict. And so, yes, I think, I mean, from the Chinese point of view, this is beneficial to the U.S. And if we're going to 
you know, be more concrete about it and to what Steve was alluding to. Um, from the Chinese perspective, it, it makes it easier, um, for the U.S. to continue to maintain or to even increase its military presence around China's periphery. And they don't want that, you know, and they don't want to make it easier for the U.S. to come closer to China's coast. And the fact that there's all these challenges to actually creating new mechanisms or new rules and new hotlines, I think, contributes to of, you know, the Biden administration's low expectations of what dialogue with China can produce. So then we have what is arguably the main flashpoint between the US and China, Taiwan. So August last year, maybe the last big moment was this visit by Nancy Pelosi when she was Speaker of the US House of Representatives to uh, Taiwan. That seemed to prompt this sort of Chinese reaction of Chinese planes now coming up to the median line, this unofficial boundary in the middle of the Taiwan Straits, rubbing up against the Taiwanese defense forces. Also, China acted out this what this mock blockade after Pelosi's visit, firing missiles over Taiwan. Since the Pelosi visit, I mean, how would you sort of describe Chinese policy towards the island? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, well, first, there, there is China's perspective in general is that there is a clear trend of the U.S. hollowing out its one China policy and diluting its commitments made to Beijing, even as the U.S. continues to say that it is still upholding those commitments. And the Chinese would point to the way that the U.S. talks about Taiwan, the way the Biden administration has talked about Taiwan, the way in which the U.S. is actively helping Taiwan build up its defenses and trying to reduce Taiwan's diplomatic isolation. Uh, and so Beijing has consistently said this is their red line. Um, and, but despite the shift in context, uh, and even, you know, post Pelosi, you know, there's no shift in the basic principles or the overarching strategy on Taiwan. It, you know, remains based in their one China principle, in the one country, two systems, uh, and a preference for peaceful unification while still holding out the possibility of using force if necessary. And in practice, China's approach has always involved both waving carrots and sticks to you know, shape the calculus of Taiwan's decision makers and Taiwanese people. The objective has been to deter Taiwan from moving towards de jure independence and, and increasingly now is to move Taiwan towards uh, unification. We've seen an increase and, uh, you know, in the use of sticks, and we've seen that in the form of economic and military coercion. And we've seen uh, that China is trying harder, actually, to dangle some of the carrots um, following uh, the 20th Party Congress. And the goal here is really to influence the upcoming Taiwanese presidential elections so that the opposition party can return to power, the party that Beijing prefers. And so that's Chinese policy. If we come to the US, I mean, I guess first, from what I understand, the Biden administration, at least if you believe the public accounts, really wasn't keen on Pelosi going to Taiwan. But do you get the sense that they tried hard to dissuade her? Well, the sense one gets is that certainly at the, you know, sub-political level, the experts in the administration definitely didn't want this to happen. Um, the question mark is how hard 
Biden himself tried to dissuade Pelosi, who, of course, is from the same political party, uh, from doing it. And the open question is, did he actually pick up the phone and ask her not to do it? Did he feel that he couldn't do it because of domestic politics? One doesn't really know. But I really have not read any accounts suggesting that um, either the U.S. or Taiwan gained from that visit. Um, and it did create all kinds of setbacks in terms of creating a pretext for the Chinese to do um, what you were describing, including, you know, practicing a pretty frightening blockade scenario. And we'll come in a moment to sort of the guiding principles of U.S. policy toward Taiwan. But before that, I mean, there has been a lot of talk over recent months, recent years about a Chinese assault on Taiwan. I mean, do you get a sense of how worried are U.S. officials about that? The U.S. message has really sh- sort of moved around on this. I think, you know, you, you read a lot um, about a year ago about wargaming that had been done where the U.S. was looking at what it could do if there were a uh, Chinese invasion and not coming up with answers that were very reassuring from the U.S. military perspective. And so what you see is the U.S. military is now sort of moving as quickly as it can, maybe not as quickly as people would like, to try and build up its capabilities, build up its naval capabilities, build up advanced weapon systems that it thinks would put it in a better position to defend the island. But at least the accounts that I read suggest that a lot of this capability won't come online until the 2030s. Everybody knows that she has said that he wants the Chinese military to be capable of a successful invasion by 2027. And then you read accounts of U.S. flag officers speaking a little bit off the cuff, is my sense, saying, well, that means, you know, we need to be prepared for an invasion even sooner, maybe 2025 or maybe even sooner than that, because the Chinese could try and take advantage of the U.S. being distracted by national elections. My sense is that these comments um, by naval and air force officers weren't necessarily coordinated at the policy level here in Washington. And more recently, you've seen an effort, um, I think CIA Director Bill Burns was on one of the Sunday morning shows and said, no, we haven't reached the conclusion that, you know, an invasion is inevitable. So they've tried to sort of walk that back a little bit. I mean, broadly speaking, the administration is trying to balance this idea of making sure Taiwan can defend itself as a form of deterrence. So building Taiwanese defenses, building U.S.'s ability to help Taiwan in the event of an attack. But at the same time, you know, not wanting to give Beijing the impression that, uh, you know, that the window for, for unification is closing, that U.S. policy is changing, either the strategic ambiguity or the, the one China policy. But then not everything is sort of within their control. And you have, for example, the Pelosi visit or the balloon incident or the, or the Ukraine war, for that matter. And these things make treading that balance all the more difficult. Yes. I mean, I think under the best of circumstances, they would have a very difficult, you know, line to walk because what they really are trying to do is shift facts, right? Make Taiwan more capable of defending itself, buy some time for the U.S. to develop its capabilities, while at the same time projecting that the political status quo remains what it's been. In other words, that the one China policy remains intact, that strategic ambiguity remains intact. But then the president has said four times 
made statements that are at odds with strategic ambiguity by claiming that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense. Was that by accident or design? People don't really know. And then you have a Congress that is acting by, you know, the Pelosi visit. And then there was a piece of legislation that emerged over the course of the fall called the Taiwan Policy Act that ended up being watered down, but that had a number of provisions that were viewed as eroding, if not just, you know, really undermining the one China policy. And um, you have all that happening amid what the United States, I think, sees as symbolic actions. People here tend to see those as relatively low-cost gestures, um, but I don't know that the Chinese see them the same way. Um, and so, you know, when you have language in the U.S. legislation that sort of seems to doesn't necessarily do anything, but seems to undermine the one China policy. Maybe people here on Capitol Hill don't see that as being so consequential. But I think it it may be perceived differently in China. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's actually kind of interesting on that point. I I, I think that so let's take Pelosi's visit and let's take some of these more symbolic gestures. Um, you know, Lithuania deciding to change the name of the representative office of Taiwan. This was to establish a Taiwanese office in Lithuania or change the name of the existing office to the Taiwanese representative office, which is unusual. I mean, usually Taiwan has sort of trade offices, less formal, less of a red flag for Beijing. Yes, that's right. It's the Taiwanese representative office in Lithuania now. And that, by the way, that was what the U.S. legislation was going to do. It was going to change the name of the Taiwan office here to the Taiwan Representation Office, I believe. So these actions, they, they are all operating in the symbolic realm. But the, because of how public they are, and because this is very much, in a way, a fight over the narrative around Taiwan, these are the sort of actions that China feels compelled to respond to. These are the sort of actions that they feel like they have to make a show of condemning and rebuking. Uh, but if you compare it to, say, um, arms sales, you know, by the U.S., um, those have been taking place um, for quite some time now. And for those, China will issue a statement. But the interaction on that, which arguably does more to bolster Taiwan's deterrence, um, defenses, they have become almost routine. In some ways, the more public an action, the more China feels compelled to publicly respond. Is it also not that weapons change Taiwan's ability to defend itself, but the so-called symbolic stuff is about Taiwan's potential statehood? No? So that maybe also sort of explains the sensitivity. I think it's a little bit of both. I think you're right that it, it touches on uh, Taiwan's political status, and that is particularly sensitive um, for China. But you could argue that just, you know, Lithuania changing the name to the Taiwanese representative office, at the end of the day, how much does that actually do for Taiwan's political status? And so something that we were worried about as a sort of next potential flashpoint was this idea that the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who replaced Nancy Pelosi, would himself visit Taiwan to 
sort of burnish his hawkish credentials against China, you know, replicate in some ways the Pelosi visit. And yet now it seems he's not going. He's instead going to see Taiwanese President Tsai in the US instead. Now, unlike Pelosi, McCarthy's obviously not from Biden's party. He's a Republican, not a Democrat. So he's not going to be inclined to do anything to help the Biden administration. So is this something that's come from Taipei? It's the Taiwanese that have dissuaded him from coming to Taiwan? Well, based off of the Financial Times piece um, that leaked this news, it, it does seem from that telling that it was the Taiwanese that convinced McCarthy to not visit. Uh, partly, it seems, by making clear uh, some of the new pressures that Taiwan has come under from Beijing as a result of the Pelosi visit. I would just say, you know, in a series of not very good news flashes over the last couple of months relating to the U.S.-China relationship, this is actually a relatively good news story because it suggests that a, a very senior U.S. political leader can actually be influenced by policy considerations rather than simple domestic politics. Um, you know, in talking to Taiwanese officials, it is very difficult to find someone uh, who would say, oh, it's a great idea for Speaker McCarthy to come over. But the question was whether they'd be able to communicate that effectively to Speaker McCarthy and his staff, because it's very difficult for the Taiwanese also to tell an American political leader, please don't come. And did they try to tell Pelosi, do you think? I think that because of the way that events played out around Pelosi's visit, namely that the plans for the visit were leaked, and because of the publicity around it, uh, it, it, I think it was particularly difficult for either the Biden administration or Taipei to intervene. There's another difference as well, though, right? I mean, the, the McCarthy visit was sort of scheduled to take place much closer to the Taiwanese elections, the 2024 elections. And a visit by uh, the U.S. House Speaker could have sort of played into, could, I, I guess the fear is, play into to the campaign in a way that's unhelpful. Yeah, I mean, it, the, I think the issue there was it was uncertain what the electoral effect would have been. So if we assume that McCarthy, in response to a McCarthy visit to Taiwan, Beijing would at a minimum match the military exercises that they conducted uh, in response to Pelosi's visit or even ratcheted it up a, a bit more, um, the the sort of effects and the optics of that, you know, it could have cut both ways. The KMT could use that to say, you see, under the current government, they are bringing crisis to our doorsteps and relations across the strait have never been worse uh, and use that to campaign. But uh, the DPP could also say that in helping to normalize visits by high-level foreign officials to Taiwan, they were, uh, in effect, standing up for Taiwan um, in the face of uh, Chinese Communist Party aggression. So I think the fact that neither party was very confident 
about the effect of such a visit、uh, did contribute. Maybe to a greater willingness to be proactive in preempting such a visit, and I think from the American side, you know, if you're Speaker McCarthy's political advisors, you're saying, "Why do you need to take this risk? You just don't know how this is going to play. It could go, it could go in a direction that we don't like, and we'll be blamed for influencing the election and creating a pretext for the Chinese to go even further than they did after the Pelosi visit." So I think. The potential costs were more visible and probably more persuasive to him than they were in advance of the Pelosi visit. I mean, you know,、uh, hopefully Beijing sees this for what it is, which is,、uh, you know, an attempt by Taipei to deescalate and to create a way out for everyone. But you know, at the end of the day, its reaction will also depend on. What Tsai's visit to the U.S. looks like, where she goes, who she meets with, what she says, how formal everything appears.、Uh, you know, there will certainly be public condemnation from Beijing, of course,、uh, but how else it will react will really depend on the details of her trip. Now, Tsai has transited through the U.S. on her way to Latin America twice before, in 2018 and 2019. Um, so it's not that this is unprecedented, and in response to each of those visits, Beijing uh, protested. Uh, but、um, let's see what her itinerary looks like in the end. And Richard, I'll just jump in to say, I mean, people who know China and Taiwan know that the cross-strait crisis in the mid '90s was precipitated when the Taiwanese president attended an event at his alma mater, Cornell University. So it's not impossible for this thing to blow up、um, as well. But as Amanda points out, in the scope of potential outcomes, given that people were expecting McCarthy to do something, this could at least be spun as de-escalatory, as trying to turn the temperature down. And hopefully, Beijing will see it that way. And hopefully,、uh, the people handling this visit will try and package it in a way that allows it to see it that way. Could we end then by talking a bit about those、uh, forthcoming elections? And they're obviously going to dominate Taiwanese politics for the coming months. Obviously, something that Washington is also watching closely. So, the ruling party at the moment that we talked about is the, the DPP, the Democratic Progressives Party, traditionally more independence leaning. Outgoing President Tsai, her term limit is up. She's no longer leader of the DPP. She's been well liked in Washington, and the new. Head of the DPP is、uh, apparently sort of more hawkish. His background is more hawkish on China. He's going to be、uh, up against the candidate from what is now the main opposition party, the the KMT or the Guomintang, which traditionally has had better cross-strait relations, better relations with Beijing. Now I realise it's early; elections aren't till next year. But how is this looking like? It might play out. So the the DPP candidate. Uh, will be the current vice president,、uh, Lai Qingde, and、uh, the the sort of question marks around his candidacy has to do with remarks that he made、uh, years back about being a political worker for Taiwan's independence,、uh, and so th- those have raised question marks about the sort of president he will be and and the way he manages the cross strait relationship. Now, in in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that Lai has、uh, taken steps to to address this concern. He stated publicly that he intends on continuing with、uh, Tsai's 
cross-strait policy. So signaling continuity. Um, and, and that is very much meant to reassure Washington. And Amanda, that's something that's specific to now in that the US, for all the talk of confrontation with China, doesn't actually want a crisis to blow up anytime soon while Ukraine is still going on, while you know it's, it's distracted with this war in Europe. Or it's a more regular thing that, that you know, Ukraine or not, Washington simply prefers in general that cross-strait relations within reason sort of aren't too fraught. I think, you know, Washington, they've had a fairly dependable president in Tsai, in the current president. They weren't always sure about her in the beginning, but she has demonstrated an ability to balance her position, which is that Taiwan is already a sovereign state and therefore does not need to declare its independence. Um, and, and, and staking out that position while mitigating, um, you know, some of the fallout uh, across the strait. So I, I think that it, and Tsai came in with um, experience from overseeing the agency that manages uh, cross-strait relations. Um, and, and her, her background on this was deep. So I, I think one of the questions, I mean, not just for the DPP candidate, Lai, but also for the KMT candidate, there will be questions around, um, you know, what those candidates' cross-strait platforms will be. Um, and who will be their uh, advisors on, on the issue? I think these are questions that both Beijing and Washington are asking right now. And Steve, what's your sense from conversations with administration officials? I think administration officials are playing their cards pretty close because they don't want to be seen as interfering in Taiwan's democratic processes. I think if you were to give somebody truth serum, um, what they might say is they found the DPP to be a good partner when it comes to defense reform. Um, you know, President Tsai has been the steward of some important changes, including, you know, a, a new conscription policy that's going to bring in, um, uh, Taiwanese recruits for a year of training. It's extending the period of training. Um, and there are other changes the U.S. would like to see two to the Taiwanese defense posture, making it more capable of an asymmetric defense. On the other hand, there's probably some worries about the kinds of things that Amanda was alluding to, you know, in terms of what cross-strait relationships could look like if the DPP gets another term. Um, whereas the KMT, you know, even though people may be a little bit uncomfortable with, um, you know, the, 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 the way in which they're perceived to be a little bit more Beijing leaning, that the advantage of that is that there probably would be an opening for dialogue and you probably would have a smoother cross-strait relationship. So it's complicated. You know, there are, I guess there are benefits on both sides, um, through the U.S. lens, even though U.S. officials might not put it in those terms. Just to add, there's going to be concerns about if a KMT if the KMT wins the presidency and dialogue does reopen, you know, what the KMT will sign up to in terms of what Beijing proposes um, to to keep that dialogue channel open. So so I mean I think there's question marks, you know, on on both sides. We we haven't seen the KMT um govern in eight years and the context has changed considerably. I very much agree. And how much has the Ukraine war sort of played into Taiwanese politics. I mean, on the one hand, 
you can imagine that it might reinforce sort of the pro-independence side, a side that says, you know, we've got to build up our defenses. We've got to get as close as we can to the US. You know, this is going to happen at some point and, you know, we need to be ready and you could see how the Ukraine war might reinforce that. On the other hand, maybe you could make a case that, you know, it would be better to improve cross-strait relations, to not court a conflict with our bigger aggressive neighbor. I mean, is it just sort of reinforcing that same fault line or is it changing debates in other ways? So look, Richard, Amanda's going to have her finger more on the pulse than I, than I do, but certainly over and over again, talking to Taiwanese officials, I have heard them say that Ukraine was really a wake up call. And, um, I think what they meant by that was, um, it, made it very apparent that things that people would have liked to believe were unthinkable, you know, uh, military operation on an enormous scale against a highly urbanized island that would just present terrible pictures to the world um, might actually happen um, in the same way that Russian tanks rolling into Ukraine and the level of destruction we've seen might have seemed unthinkable even a couple of years ago. It's happened now. Um, so I think on the whole, I think it, it made them aware of their vulnerability um, and has helped galvanize um, a certain level of resolve in terms of taking some tough decisions about about their defense that might have been more difficult earlier. So I think it's definitely um, given some momentum to to parts of Taiwanese society, but there is you know, another narrative, which, you know, Richard sort of put his finger on, which will be pushed and has been pushed uh, by the KMT uh, and also by China. Uh, and, and so right now, a, a key campaign message is, is that a vote for the DPP is a vote for war. And the idea that the U.S. is trying to turn Taiwan into the next uh, Ukraine these are narratives that gets a surprising amount of traction in, in Taiwanese society. And they're peddled also, of course, by the Chinese, right? I mean, this is something that the Chinese information services, disinformation services are promoting hard in Taiwan. Uh, precisely. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, that these elections will, 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 it will be a, a referendum on on you know which way the Taiwanese population is swayed in terms of this narrative that has been you know ongoing and building up ever since the war started in Ukraine. Although perhaps in the end, you know, it, it seems unlikely that the Chinese are going to attempt anything anytime soon. It seemed unlikely before, and probably now, given the difficulties Russia's found itself in in Ukraine. And sanctions and, and the fact that the West has, has stuck together, I mean, that must also provide some additional deterrence for, for Beijing now. Yeah, I think that, you know, Russia's setbacks on the battlefield has um, likely prompted a lot of reflection um, amongst Chinese military planners. Um, for the PLA, the objective you know, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a Taiwan military campaign is a decisive and swift uh, victory. And so, so they don't want to see uh, any sort of military scenario with Taiwan playing out the way as played out in, in Ukraine. So certainly I, I think 
I think that the costs of, of a bungled um, military assault has been made quite clear um, to China. And, and like you said, um, the sanctions that have been imposed by the West, the ability to choke the Russians off of the international financial system, I think that has certainly uh, uh, gotten the attention of decision makers in Beijing. But at the same time, the war is not over. Um, and so I think how it eventually ends or how it plays out over the next months, years, will also continue to feed into Chinese perceptions as to the resilience of the West in the face of growing economic challenges and sacrifices. And so I think the jury is out on this, even though the costs have been made clear. I think that Beijing is probably watching the situation closely as it evolves. Amanda, Steve, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on US-China, on everything else we cover, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. We mentioned on this episode, the previous episode that Amanda had appeared on. You can also check that out. That's got even more detail about how the US and Chinese militaries are coming into closer and closer contact around Taiwan, also in the South China Sea. So check that out too if you want more background. It was about a year and a half ago now, but still very relevant. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns. If you like the show, please do say something nice about us, leave a positive rating or review, and I very much hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>